trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I know there are a lot of voices out there, a lot of sources for information. So whatever happy coincidence it is that you stumbled upon this one, thank you for giving me a chance. I do not claim to have all the answers, but I want you to know I make an honest effort every day to try to discern reality and truth as it really is, and then to uh, share that pleasantly and as undemandingly as possible. I was just uh, rereading an article by Paul Rosenberg earlier today about, uh, you know, the need for uh, for gradual change as opposed to sudden change. And this this especially is true when it comes to truth. And and maybe you've been here before where you you, you learn something or you discover something. You have that epiphany, that aha moment where, where your eyes come open and you're like, wow, I get it. And then there's this sense of urgency that sets in where, well, I, now that I get it, I, I really need to share this with others, right? It's, this, is, this is good. It's beneficial. I want other people to know about it. In fact, I don't just want them to know about it. I want them to accept it. And so it's really easy to get drawn into that trap of uh, insisting, no, 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 you not only need to hear what I'm saying, but you need to accept it. You need to admit that I'm right. And it's hard because what you're asking, and we don't realize this, but when we ask people to do that or we demand that people do that, what we're telling them to do, if they don't already agree with us, is... Uh, you need to recant whatever it is that you've been believing for however long and admit that what I'm telling you is right and that you are wrong. And basically the foundations of whatever you've been basing your worldview on have been false or have been wrong to that degree. That's not easy. Come on, that's admitted. No, none of us likes to do that. None of us was, oh, well, I guess everything that came before me was wrong. So hmm, here goes. I'll just reject it all. No. So instead of insisting that people change quickly... Paul Rosenberg reminds us, you know, the thing is, people who change abruptly, like all at once, those are the most unstable people you'll ever meet. In fact, there are a lot of people, oh, let me tell you about my ex. You know, <laughs> there's some great stories out there that'll tell you. Yeah, suddenly, like a switch, he just changed all at once. And, and the problem is, that kind of change, that instantaneous pivot on a dime, and what, now I'm going a new direction. It's not going to last. They will change again when something new and shiny catches their attention. Oh, now off they go in another direction. I, I kind of liken this to weight loss. A few years ago, okay, quite a few years ago, um, I had this wonderful trainer, Patty Goey, who uh, took me and my co-host, Mike McGarry, under her arm, and she mentored us, I would say, for the better part of two years. She mentored us on diet. She mentored us uh, by, we'd go in once a week and work out with her. We had regular accountability. She would also come in and do a radio show with us, which was, was just awesome. And I was surprised because, you know, I, I wanted to get into shape. I, you know, too much time sitting sedentary, too many pushaways, too much table muscle. All that stuff was going on. And I was anxious to, to lose weight. I was like, come on, I really, I want to get fit. I want to, I want to get into great shape. But she just kept telling me, trust the process. And it took, it took some time. I dropped about 45 pounds over the course of about, I'm saying uh, roughly a year, year and a half. And that weight came off slowly. But as Patty explained it to me, the, the weight that comes off slowly and is replaced with lean muscle is weight that stays off. And she was right. 
Now, I've since regained it and probably a bit extra, but my point is, if you do it all at once, and we, we know people who've done the yo-yo dieting thing, well, I lost 20 pounds, and then boom, I'm back up 30 pounds, you know. Slow and steady is what, uh, what actually gets it done. And it, it's the same way when it comes to teaching others or sharing truth with other people. We have to be willing to embrace slow change and reject that urgency for, no, 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 we got to change now. In fact, if you, if you notice, the people who are engaging in the most totalitarian behavior right now are the people who are insisting everybody must change their thinking now. And this is what's acceptable. You don't want to be on that side. If you can persuade people, plant those seeds of truth, do it with kindness. Understand that some people are not going to appreciate it. They will lash out. But take their, take their knee-jerk reaction in stride. It doesn't mean they're an evil person. It just means they've encountered some discomfort. And they're, they're taking it out on you, but you don't have to respond in kind. So if you can speak the truth with kindness, with love, not respond in anger when someone else decides that, uh, well, you know, I'm not ready to hear what you have to say. But nourish those seeds of truth. And, and by, by nourish, I mean continue to show concern, continue to be a friend, continue to love that person. Something happens over time, and sometimes it takes years. But when that seed begins to take hold and grow, and the person looks at it and says, wow, this is what I see. And maybe they'll come back to you at some point and say, you know what? I see what it is that you were trying to share with me. Oftentimes that doesn't happen. And it's not important that you get credit, okay? It's not like, yes, yeah, I need my accolades to, to make sure that I'm, I'm totally, you know, right and everybody knows it. But that's where authentic improvement takes place. It's that slow and steady marathon approach. You just stay with it. Your endurance is what makes the difference, as opposed to just a sprint to convince everybody all at once. I hope this makes sense. I feel better for getting it off my chest. Got to tip my hat to Paul Rosenberg. What a blessing that man and his thinking has been in my own life in helping me understand some things that otherwise I was getting pretty wrong. So I hope I'm, I'm making that improvement myself and not just, you know, asking you, hey, do this, even though I'm not willing to do it. I'm totally willing to do this. Okay, now having said this, I'm going to touch on a subject that I know is a very sore spot for a lot of people. And I don't watch Monday Night Football, but uh, I was on Twitter Monday night and I was well aware when DeMar Hamlin collapsed playing football and, you know, the, the collapse, the way he went down, um, I'll admit, the very first thing I wondered was, ooh, are we seeing a vaccine injury? Now, I don't know what caused his cardiac arrest. In fact, doctors have not released anything. So, so the truth of the matter is nobody knows for sure what it is that, that caused his heart to stop. Okay, they started CPR, they were bagging him, they, they, I think, had to use an AED to get his heart started again, took him to the hospital, he remains in critical condition. Sad stuff. From what I understand, he's a pretty stand-up guy. But what was really interesting to me was the, the absolute faux outrage, the contrived outrage that, uh, that vaccine advocates had that anybody would even suggest that perhaps, you know, COVID vaccines might be an explanation, you know, for why an otherwise very healthy athlete suddenly collapsed and was in deadly peril right there on the field. I know people are, oh, you're politicizing this. And I would say, you know, I beg to differ. 
you who are saying everybody shut up and don't ever mention that, you're the one politicizing it because you understand. I'm, I'm sure the pucker factor for the Pfizer executives who were watching Monday Night Football was probably pretty high. And again, I'm not saying that's because they know it's their mRNA vaccines that are causing this. Nobody knows that for sure. But here's what we do know. And this is why I'm not going to apologize for, for having that thought and having to wonder is we have seen over the last couple of years since the rollout of the vaccines, not just a handful, but hundreds, possibly thousands of highly conditioned athletes either having their careers ended due to heart problems like myocarditis or other effects that, that, that popped up or otherwise just having cardiac arrest falling over and dying right there on the field. And in many cases, these are athletes that were, how can I put this, up to date on their shots. I know. Nobody wants to admit, uh, well, we don't want to think that, you know, that could possibly be the case. And I, I get it. It's a very uncomfortable thought. What if this vaccine that was pushed by every level of government and by so many entities and, and forced upon so many people, what if there were some negative side effects? I mean, you know, nothing says trust the science like, well, we can't really tell you much about the vaccine uh, for 75 years. That seems to indicate until most of you are dead, uh, you really can't know the truth about uh, the, the vaccine trials or any potential side effects or anything like that. I know it sounds a lot of, well, Brian, are you accusing these uh, big pharma companies of engaging in something nefarious? I don't know. They're not really into answering questions. And frankly, they have a lot of people within the media and within politics trying to cover for them. But the main reason for my beef is I have not forgotten and I will not forget and I will not forgive the people who pushed the vaccine and pushed it to the point where they were saying, yeah, refuse medical care to the unvaccinated. Let them starve. Don't let them shop here. Don't let them work. Let's excise them from society. These are the same people who are showing outrage. How dare you bring up the possibility of a vaccine injury when there's a, a man fighting for his life who's just a football player and he's just trying to do his best. And... Well, I'm sorry, but if you hadn't forced it so hard, it probably wouldn't cause that many of us to wonder, but it does. And again, I reiterate, we don't know the cause of, of his uh, cardiac arrest, but you know, we hope DeMar Hamlin pulls through. But having seen so many athletes have this problem you know it wasn't a problem a couple years ago what changed this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show hey welcome back to the show i want to uh, give a shout out here to monticellocollege.org as well as lifesavingfood.com for being sponsors of this program also a shout out to those of you who uh, follow me on Spotify actually Anchor and Spotify and have chosen to be uh, monthly contributors yeah you know for the cost of a cup of coffee I have people who are you know donating five bucks a month I appreciate it very much I'm not asking more people to do it but I wouldn't stop you if you did I just want to make sure you know I appreciate it I treat those funds as sacred they are for the purpose of helping proclaim liberty. And that's what I'm doing to the best of my ability. So I'm watching with some interest uh, the, the current uh, 
power struggle taking place in the U.S. House of Representatives. If I understand this correctly, in a hundred years, this is the first time that they have failed to elect a majority, or the majority has failed to elect a Speaker of the House on the first try. And I got to, I got to admit, I'm kind of grateful for that. I'm happy to see that. Uh, wow, there's uh, there's some serious uh, problems and serious misgivings over the idea of having another California Republican or California, you know, representative acting as uh, as the the Speaker of the House. And I'm, I'm going to just touch on this briefly. I think the Republican Party is about to go the way of the Whigs. And I'm not trying to tell you that, uh, yeah, the old school Republicans, you know, they're the ones that need to, the Mitt Romneys and so forth. Yeah, they're the ones that need to prevail. Uh, nor am I going to tell you the MAGA faction of the Republican Party is the one that needs to prevail. But can you see the divide? It's there. And I am grateful for those, I think it's 19 representatives who have refused to budge and will not, uh, you know, bend the knee. I know they're being called lots of names and, and whatnot, but frankly, this is the kind of gridlock that, that I'm glad to see, especially after it was a bipartisan effort to pass that omnibus spending bill at the end of last year, you know, to the tune of nearly $2 trillion more. The political class is not operating in our interest. So when they get hamstrung and when they get, uh, you know, gridlocked, I don't see that as a bad thing. I'm just kind of grateful to see that, uh, that finally, you know, there's, it's not just going to be business as usual. Somebody is actually putting up a fight and representing the people that elected them. Now, having said that, I want to share with you some thoughts from uh, James Howard Kunstler. This guy has got a really solid handle on a lot of the things that are taking place. So uh, he covers a number, a number of different items here, but I wanted to share this with you. Uh, he starts with a quote from Richard Feynman. Reality must take precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled. Again, that's Richard Feynman who says that. James Howard Kunstler says the exhausting tolls of the holiday or toils rather of the holiday are behind us. The mischief that could be done by the lame ducks in Congress has been done. $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill. And the time has come for the citizens of this land to get some answers about the escalating trips laid on them by their own government. Now, he says the House of Representatives is in new hands, and you'll know in pretty short order whether they are capable, trustworthy hands or just a blur of fast fingers running another three-card Monty table. The most pressing questions abide around justice, and the gavel of the Judiciary Committee passes from the barely alive Gerald Nadler from New York to the very animated Jim Jordan from Ohio. He needs to ask FBI Director Chris Ray how it came to be that the Bureau sat in possession of the Hunter Biden laptop during the impeachment of January 2020 and did not offer up to the defense the exculpatory evidence it abundantly contained in the way of business deal memos between the Biden family and officials in several foreign lands, Ukraine in particular. After all, impeachment hinged on a telephone inquiry Mr. Trump made about just those matters. Was there anything to it at all or not? Well, obviously there was, and Mr. Ray's conduct looks like obstruction of justice in the highest degree. Representative James Comer comes in as chair of the House Oversight and Reform Committee. He announced months ago that he would hold hearings on interesting issues such as Hunter Biden's taxes and exactly who paid to support his new career as an artist. 
Quote, we've got national security concerns with respect to Hunter Biden. We want you, we want to know, if you remember, who bought that expensive artwork when he was an artist for about three days and sold the artwork for half a million dollars. We want to know why the Russian oligarchs who paid Hunter Biden money were mysteriously left off the sanctions list when Joe Biden started putting sanctions on Russians and Russian oligarchs. We've got a lot of questions about shady business dealings that Hunter had and whether or not they impacted the Biden administration. End quote. Now, James Howard Kunstler says next, Mr. Ray has to answer for the FBI's infiltration of social media. How did the top lawyer at the FBI, Jim Baker, come to be employed as the right hand to Twitter's chief censor, Vijaya Gotti? How did all those former FBI agents land at the company along with Jim Baker? And what did Mr. Ray have to do with the FBI demands to censor news and persons on matters of critical national importance, such as vaccine safety and election fraud? How did more than 100 former federal agents land on Facebook, Google, and other platforms? How did Mr. Ray decide to shut down the avenues of the First Amendment to the Constitution? Next up, Attorney General Merrick Garland. On what grounds are pre-trial January 8th, January 6th, actually, riot suspects being held in the decrepit D.C. federal lockup without bail on rinky-dink charges two years after the event? How does that square with American due process of law? What did he know about the existence of the Hunter Biden laptop and the evidence it contained? What is he doing about it? How did Mr. Garland happen to target for prosecution parents protesting school board policies on race and sexual matters? Of course, Mr. Garland is going to evade answering by using the ploy that all this pertains to ongoing investigations. Mr. Jordan better hire a chief counsel with some brains to penetrate that bodyguard of lies. If the special subcommittee on the January 6th riot is disbanded, turn the matter over to the Andy Biggs Subcommittee on Crime, Terrorism, and Homeland Security. Kunstler says, let's hear from Nancy Pelosi's staff as to how come her office of the Speaker turned down offers from the Trump White House for National Guard protection that day. Let's also hear from then-Chief of the Capitol Police, Stephen Sund, who resigned from that job two days later in consternation or disgrace. Bring back Mr. Ray and Mr. Garland. How many federal agents were circulating in the crowd the night and day the day I'm sorry, the night before and day of the January 6th riot? Why was one Ray Epps never indicted for his much recorded incitements to enter the Capitol? Who opened the magnetically locked doors from the inside of the building? Stuff like that. What was the decision process for not charging Officer Michael Byrd in the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt? Kunstler says, I hope it's not too impertinent to suppose that the January 6th riot was engineered by our government to embarrass and punish its political opponents, taking advantage of the First Amendment right of the people to to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, which was what the crowd had come to do in Washington, D.C. that day. Interesting how a little tweaking here and there turned that into a convenient fiasco and how government control and interference over social media and corporate news was used to reinforce the narrative that the event was an insurrection, one of the many big lies of our time nurtured by our government against its citizens. A few other inquiries for this new Congress to commence ASAP. 
Can we hear from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as to how come the U.S.-Mexican border is absolutely wide open? Why his employees are transporting illegal aliens all around the USA? Why is he running a program in Mexico to give Venezuelans and other select alien nationals advanced authorization and two years parole, then sneaking them into the USA through regular ports of entry? Then there's the enormous looming storm cloud of questions over COVID-19. The origin of it, the botched trials of the mRNA vaccines, the conduct of the emergency in 2020 by Dr. Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks, and many others, including the two principals hiding in the shadows for three years, epidemiologist Ralph Barrick of the University of North Carolina and Peter Daszak of the EcoHealth Alliance. Also, the demonization of early treatment protocols with safe, FDA-approved ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And the list goes on. And then, of course, there's all the darkness about our 51st state, Ukraine, as measured by the amount of taxpayer money funneled into it. He says, we'll get a lot of, uh, we'll be a better country when we get a lot of answers to these questions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about education. In my home state of Idaho, right now, there is this incredible blitz on the part of, uh, well, public relations firms as well as corporate media. They are terrified that the prospect of school choice is something that could become a reality during the upcoming legislative session. And it's not just happening here. This is happening in Utah. It's happening in in other states around the country. School choice is definitely becoming an issue. And it's, you know, I can understand why this is. There are a lot of parents, myself included, who are actually pretty concerned with some of the things that are starting to find their way into our schools. And you have to wonder, why is education such a battleground throughout the country? Well, the simple answer is because leftists have been working overtime to seize control of the education system at every level. In fact, I've got a great article here from George Leaf. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org. Sorry, I had to make sure I was getting their name right. A key lesson in education policy, you don't make peace with termites. George Leaf says, for most of the last century, the progressives have been taking over the nation's education system at every level. Pick any teacher, professor, or administrator, and chances are high that he or she is utterly dedicated to the leftist project of replacing our liberal, in the true sense of the word, society, with their vision of a properly regulated one. By controlling education, the leftists implant the ideas they favor into students, including collectivism, egalitarianism, and acceptance of authority, while at the same time repressing ones that work against them, things like individualism, skepticism of authority, and belief in the spontaneous order of liberty. He says, due to the phenomenal success of that project, school and college curricula are saturated with hostility to Western civilization. Teachers are trained in education schools that promote failed pedagogical concepts while at the same time demonizing anything that's remotely conservative or libertarian. Overwhelmingly, The people who work in state education bureaucracies have been steeped in leftist ideology. They're far less concerned about how well students learn to read, write, and do math than than with turning them into zealous advocates for their pet causes. And once students get into college, 
the drumbeat for progressivism continues. Now, not every student succumbs, of course, but the heavy leftist slant has a big impact on many of them. That helps to explain why such a high percentage of young voters went for Democrats in 2022 and why so many hold frighteningly authoritarian beliefs. This is as if, is as if someone had built a lovely house through savings and hard work, only to find that termites have infested the foundation. They're steadily chewing away at the wood, weakening it. They won't stop. It's what they do. Now he says, I bring this up because two neighboring states, Florida and Georgia, show how and how not to deal with the termite problem of leftist education control. Writing for National Review, Stanley Kurtz contrasts the eagerness of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to take on and defeat the leftist education apparatchiks in his state and the way that Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has allowed his to continue their control over how students will be taught in his state. First, DeSantis has promoted an excellent replacement for the common core standards that were so vigorously pushed during the Obama years. Why does that matter? Well, in this case, uh, Stanley Kurtz explains, The wonderful thing about Florida's new English standards is the way they restore classic literature to its rightful place in the curriculum. The education left wants to ditch substantive knowledge about authors like Shakespeare or Austin, about literary periods like the classical era or the Renaissance, in favor of a focus on skills. The delusion here is that knowledge and skills can be separated. In practice, the focus on skills simply serves as an excuse to scrap the great works of Western literature. The seemingly bland and apolitical jargon of skills is manipulated to inject leftist politics into the classroom. Now, there's a link that George Leaf includes in his uh, article about uh, where you can read more about Florida's new standards. Now, he says Georgia also has new curricular standards in draft form, but unfortunately there is no emphasis on reading our literary classics. Rather, Kurtz continues, Georgia encourages students to identify the effects of social and historical influences on the biases of a given author. That trendy leftist approach cultivates a shallow reductionism that prompts students to dismiss the great literary works as dated. Indeed, it also reinforces the leftist mindset that writers should be evaluated based on their supposed biases rather than on the actual content of their work. Georgia, under a Republican governor, has an opportunity to stop the termites from doing further damage, but unaccountably, unaccountably seems content to let the destruction continue. In this American Greatness article, English professor Mark Bauerline blows the whistle. Why would a Republican governor with national ambitions produce an education roadmap that's wholly devoid of conservative beliefs and goals? How did his administration come up with a pedagogy that maintains the very progressivist ideals that have dominated the public schools for decades and turned the youth, the youth vote rather into a heavily democratic bloc? Instead of restoring the former emphasis on great English and American literature, the Georgia standards babble away about convergent and divergent thinking and deconstructing the works that are assigned. That is exactly what the left wants, a clear field for continuing their assault on Western civilization. Bauerlein hits the nail on the head when he writes, we shouldn't underestimate the power of great literature and a great tradition to resist the blandishments of woke coercion. Identity politics don't appeal so much to a youth who's imbibed self-reliance and Walden, works that abhor group dynamics. Read Swift and Orwell, and you immediately suspect an idealist who arrives with promises of radical change. Victimology won't please a mind that admires Booker T. Washington's Up, from slavery. That's right. 
And it's why it's the reason why leftist educrats in Georgia and everywhere else want to replace great books with babble about the skills they say students need, including the identification of bias in authors. The most vital skill of all, being able to read and comprehend a worthwhile book, is ignored. In truth, many teachers are themselves not very good at reading and writing, but that's another problem that stems from the progressive takeover of our education system. George Leaf says, State education standards need to be revised along the Florida lines. But getting rid of the termites requires deeper work. Education schools are the pipeline for the great majority of our teachers. In Georgia, for example, the University of Georgia's School of Education's website is wonderfully revealing about what kinds of things animate its officials, such as its focus on white privilege and anti-racist solidarity. It's hard to imagine how any student could get through the UGA School of Education without being drawn into the ideological morass. A student who disagreed would be harassed for not having the proper values. The atmosphere is poisonous to any student who simply wants to learn to teach a a subject without becoming a social justice advocate. Almost uniformly, education schools have become breeding grounds for hard-left teachers and administrators. They're beyond reform. So elected officials who want to stop the further decay of their education systems must push for alternatives to ed school certification. George Leaf concludes by saying conservative leaders need to wake up to the peril we face from control of education by dedicated leftists. There cannot be any peaceful coexistence with them, for their intention is to radically transform the nation by indoctrinating its young people. As important issues like taxes and regulations are, their most important and equally difficult task is to restore the control of education to people who actually want to educate. That's pretty powerful stuff. And that, uh, that rings quite true. I'm seeing this too, in, again, in, in, in Idaho, in the debate over education choice. One of the things that, uh, that I know, one of the uh, advocates, she's a public relations uh, person, uh, she's, she's very strongly you know, against any kind of school choice and, and engages in this armchair psychology. Oh, this is just you know, appealing to the feelings of the parents and you know, trying to portray you know, the parents as the ones who really want this. And she just can't seem to fathom. This is really what a lot of parents want. And it's not so much that they're politically motivated, but they're motivated by what they see being taught to their kids and recognizing that's harmful. Well, but the Idaho Constitution says it has to be a uniform kind of education. Ah, uh, uniformity. Yep, that's, that's the hallmark of totalitarianism. Uniformity of thought. I mean, people in uniforms look at North Korea. Oh, yes, we're all dressed the same. That's not the hallmark of a free nation. You can have good, consistent education that doesn't require everybody to chant in unison. But that seems to be what a lot of these uh, uh, advocates for, you know, state-controlled education want. And they use terms like, well, it's dark money. This is just, you know, people who are advocating for school choice, all they want is just dark money to come in here and, and send their kids off to private schools. And, you know, who knows what they'll be taught there. Yeah, well, I know that they won't be taught your leftist dogma. So that's a pretty good start right there. But as far as dark money, that's kind of a weird way to refer to parents who are actually very concerned about what they see happening to their kids and maybe aren't in a position to homeschool them. Anyway, it's a big battleground, and the battle is for the minds of young people 
The left has made a lot of inroads into education, and boy, they are fighting like crazy to maintain that grasp. I'm just hoping for the day that we see an actual separation of school and state, and education takes on a much deeper meaning than it currently has. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, can I ask a small favor? I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to appeal to those of you who still use Facebook. That's probably the older set because uh, we're not all into TikTok and Instagram and everything. But if you have not been over to my uh, Facebook page, The Brian Hyde Show, could you just take a moment to, to find it and like it? That's all I'm asking. I know I've, I've sent invites out to people. I haven't done it for a while, but I don't know if it's the algorithm or what, but it just seems like the the uh, the number of, of people who have been exposed to that page stays very constant. And, I, you know, Facebook is, is, I'm sure, doing what it can to throttle back messages that don't agree with the official narrative. YouTube is very actively removing my content right now. They especially seem to have an aversion to anything questioning what they call, you know, medical uh, advice or medical uh, consensus. Basically, anything that questions the official version of why you must do what we tell you. But if you could uh, stop by and like the Brian Hyde Show Facebook page, I would really appreciate it. And again, I'll continue to do my best to make it worth your while by providing top-notch, crisp and invigorating content on a daily basis. So here's another hot button issue. I guess I'm just going to keep, keep touching that third rail today. It's not a conspiracy theory to recognize that our elections are becoming far more complicated than they once were. Now by that, I mean that there is a degree of complexity that is being introduced into this, which is being used to, I think, game the system. And there are, you know, Carrie Lake's, uh, loss in in Arizona's gubernatorial race. I know that there are those who are putting it to rest. Well, you know, she she lost fair and square. But man, I'm telling you there there were a lot of inconsistencies there including ballots printed on the wrong size of paper and the wrong font to to where the uh, ballot readers would kick them out. And this happened primarily in GOP dominated areas. Kind of an interesting coincidence, wouldn't you say? I think I saw a number today somewhere around 300 plus 1000 misdemeanors were committed in the course of that election. And and it doesn't help that when Katie Hobbs took her oath of office a couple of days ago, she was giggling as she's swearing an oath of loyalty to the U.S. Constitution and also, also to the Arizona State Constitution. She's giggling like she's about to pee her pants. I don't know if she's just giddy to get her hands on, on power or if she's just giddy that we actually did it. We pulled it off. We, <laughs> we, got, we got the governorship and, and nobody could stop us. It's really unsettling. And, and it doesn't bode well for, you know, can you trust our election system? I know there, there are those on, on both the Republican and Democrat side who are like, you know, don't, don't question this kind of thing, man. You're going to cause doubts. I think those doubts are well-founded, though. I think back to a quote from uh, Burt Gummer. If you remember the, uh, the movie franchise Tremors, the big underground worms, and Burt Gummer, the ultimate uh, survivalist. Love that guy. 
there's a time where he's out there killing those graboids, those underground worms. And here comes people from the EPA. You can't do that anymore. Well, they're an endangered species. And you know, we've got this government order. You can't do that anymore. And Bird looks at the order and he just says, that's just like government. You take something simple and complicate it. And I think that's exactly what people are doing. And I think this is this is the case with elections as well. I've got an article here from Stephen Whitney. This is from Amer- from intellectualtakeout.org. Make elections normal again. He says Americans can't seem to agree on much of anything anymore. We're deeply divided on a wide range of issues, abortion, illegal immigration, gun rights and so-called climate change to name a few. In fact, one would be hard-pressed to find a major political issue on which Republicans and Democrats overwhelmingly agree. Political polarization, he says, is nothing new. Many countries experience it at one point or another. In America, we once could put our differences aside and settle things at the ballot box. Our electoral system, when functioning as intended, transcends partisan politics. Things are different today, though. COVID-era voting policies need to be reversed in order to restore faith in our electoral process. The 2020 presidential election was chaotic, to say the least. In the run-up to the election, many states changed their laws to allow greater access to absentee ballots. Not only were absentee ballots easier to obtain, they were also allowed to be counted well after the election. And quite a bit of weirdness followed. Poll watchers were prevented from entering polling locations. Vote counts suddenly and overwhelmingly shot up for Biden in several states. Voting machines showed irregularities. Overall, it was a mess. And while the mainstream media would have you believe that those questioning that uh, questioning the results was a sign of insanity, those who viewed the funny business that defined the 2020 election with suspicious were well in their right to do so. And to be frank, dismissing the concerns of half the country is a surefire way to exacerbate existing political divisions. But such haughty condescension is what we come to expect from our ruling class these days. Stephen Whitney says, given how chaotic the 2020 election proved to be, you would think that reverting to pre-COVID voting norms would be desirable for all parties. Sadly, that doesn't appear to be the case. The Democratic Party has not only refused attempts to return to the pre-COVID election status quo, it has sought to make every election like 2020. The For the People Act, H.R. 1, passed in the House in March of 2021, but thankfully stalled out in the Senate. It would have implemented many COVID-era voting policies, nationwide mail-in voting without ID requirements, ballot harvesting, and so forth, at the federal level, thereby preventing states from doing things the once standard way. Fortunately, H.R. 1 is unlikely to make it out of the Senate, and 20 states wisely changed some voting laws to be more restrictive after the 2020 election, though some of these states changed other laws to be less restrictive. Florida, Georgia, and Texas enacted ID requirements, which rendered the absentee process more restrictive and secure. Texas also passed a law that criminalizes sending mail-in ballots to those who do not request them. Election officials who violate this law could face up to two years in jail. Now, Stephen Whitney points out such laws are hardly extreme. After all, restricting mail-in voting in most cases would revert a state to its pre-2020 election norms. Despite the efforts from some states to restore a bit of sanity to their elections, others refused to budge. As such, it should come as no surprise that midterms were plagued by similar issues we saw in 2020. In Arizona, for example, the election featured a number of oddities. Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake is currently challenging those results in court, and a judge has allowed her lawsuit to proceed on two counts. 
Now, Stephen Whitney says, look, we wish you the best, but it shouldn't have to come to this. Americans need to be able to trust their elections. Partisan divides over key issues are normal, but the electoral process, at least ideally, shouldn't further those divides. He says, we're in a bad spot if both sides can't agree on how we elect our representatives. How else are we to settle our political disagreements in a civilized manner? Expecting half the country to accept an electoral new normal that clearly only exists to benefit the other side is absurd. Those adamant that we conduct every election as if the coronavirus pandemic were still raging are responsible for politicizing our voting system. Meanwhile, the rest of us just want fair elections. I've got a link to this, as well as the other articles that I've shared in today's show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. Look, I understand these are topics that make people feel uncomfortable. And, and sometimes I really feel like, well, that's my job is to you know, point out that elephant in the room looks out of place, don't you think? But I don't do this for the sense of uh, superiority of, well, I see something that you don't. I am sounding what I hope is a voice of warning for anyone who cares enough to, to discern reality from falsehood. And Lord knows we have our work cut out for us today. I mean, the blizzard of information that's coming at us nonstop, all the various fact checkers. In fact, I think tomorrow I'm going to share with you uh, a, a Twitter thread that I found that goes into the background of one of the fact checkers. And it's, it's such an interesting story because this guy, is his job is to fact check all these things that come out about COVID and whatnot. He's not a doctor. He's not an epidemiologist. He's not a virologist. He has no medical background whatsoever. You know what he is, though? And this is why he is a fact checker. He is a wordsmith. He is someone who knows how to spin the message to, uh, I guess, to the liking of whoever's cutting him his paycheck as a fact checker. By the way, that doesn't mean necessarily he's a stupid or evil person. But I think we'd be foolish not to recognize that there are very highly skilled, highly paid spinmeisters whose job is to keep us from seeing the truth. And isn't it curious that so often the... The, the deception that takes place isn't just outright lies that are being told. Those are pretty easy to spot. It seems like more often than not, if you want to really spot where you're being buffaloed or where you're being deceived, you have to learn to, to recognize, hey, why aren't they talking about this? Why is this topic somehow off the radar of you know the organizations and information organs who are supposedly you know keeping us better informed? Helping us experience democracy at its highest level. Well, apparently some truths are very inconvenient. That's why they are there, to fact check us and make sure we don't get too close to those truths. And I'm here to do exactly the opposite. To help blow away the smokescreen and help you see what they don't want you to see. This is The Brian Hyde Show.